Amen. Please take out your copy of God's Word. Turn to 1 Samuel 29. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 251. 1 Samuel 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that's in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he might return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you've been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you're as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of the Lord who came with you. Start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went to Jezreel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, this is our, by my count, 15th sermon on the life of David. One of the things that I've, I've thought about, and it's occurred to me over and over again in this life, is simply how exciting of a story this is. It's, it's an incredible story. It's certainly true. It's all historical. But, but even if it wasn't, it's just a great, exciting story. And I was asking Pastor Walton, why hasn't there been a movie made about this? And he said there was, but it wasn't too good. But I was thinking how hard it would be to make a movie about the life of David. And the reason is because sometimes David's life, in David's life, fact is stranger than fiction. You, you look at what David does and he often does the inexplicable. He often does the most unexpected thing. And, and so with David, things are, are almost never as you would expect. Take, for example, the roller coaster we've been on with David for the last six chapters. You know, from, from uh, about 24 to 26, David was a man largely of solid faith. He was fearless, and so he could face Saul unafraid. He trusted the Lord. 
But then you come to chapter 27, and that faith crumbles. And David was afraid. You remember uh, chapter 27? He's convinced all of a sudden that Saul's going to catch him. And he's despairing. He is so fearful that he runs and he flees. And of all places that he flees, he flees to the land of the Philistines. And of all places, of all cities in the land of the Philistines, he goes to the land of Gath. You remember Gath, right? That's where Goliath was from. Why in the world would he go there? It's, it, it's, it's completely unexpected. And now, it was, we're going to see tonight, uh, and we saw it a few weeks ago, David's now in a crisis because he may have to go to war for the Philistines against his own people. But that's David. You know, we saw that uh, in chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28. We saw that David was potentially going to have to go to war or else he'd sort of blow his cover, that he hasn't really been loyal to Achish. And then, if you remember, the camera shifts away from David. And, and in chapter 28, it, it focuses on Saul. The scene completely shifts. We leave David behind. Suddenly, we're with Saul. And Saul is just as afraid as David. Saul's afraid of the Philistine attack that's coming. And it's interesting, you look at David and you look at Saul side by side, and there's actually a lot of similarities. Just like David ran to the Philistines rather than to Yahweh for help when he was afraid, we see Saul here running to what we'd call a fortune teller, a medium, a witch. The same thing that Saul had ironically prohibited from being practiced in Israel. And as we saw two weeks ago, Saul received the news that he would die in battle. Well, tonight, the scene shifts back to David. You know, with every chapter, at every turn, a new surprise comes in, and it further intensifies the story. And this chapter is no exception. And as we look at chapter 29, I want you to see three things. First, the unacknowledged enemy. Second, the unexpected help. And then third, we'll look at the unseen God. First, the unacknowledged enemy. During the War of 1812, the U.S. Navy defeated the British Navy in the Battle of Lake Erie. And after the battle, it was clear that the United States would have the war in hand. And so Master Commandant Oliver Perry wrote a letter to Major General William Henry Harrison. And he said, we have met the enemy and they are ours. Now you may know, you may know that quote, or at least you know the first half of that quote, we have met the enemy. But you may be more familiar with the comic strip Pogo, in which it says, we have met the enemy, and they are us. You know, that's a great summary of David's life. You know, since David was anointed to be the next king after Saul, he has faced one enemy after another. So first it was Goliath, and then Saul, and then the Philistines, and then Saul. And David's been something of a ping pong ball being batted back and forth from his enemies. In, in, in fact, twice now, Saul has fled to the, Phil- I mean, David has fled to the Philistines to get away from Saul. This has been going on for more than a decade, and so far, David has succeeded at eluding his enemies, oftentimes by the skin of his teeth. But there's one enemy David hasn't successfully been able to avoid, and that is himself. You know, one thing David seems to be guilty of is thinking again and again and again that he can be his own savior, that he can fix all of his own problems. And, and the more he does it, 
the bigger his problems tend to get. And so he fled to the land of the Philistines. He served Achish, or at least he pretended to serve Achish there, as we saw in chapter 27. But now it creates bigger issues. And this house of cards that he's built is about to come tumbling down. Look back at 28. Uh, chapter 28, just, just look at the first couple of verses there. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, now remember what David's been doing. David told Achish he's going to be loyal to Achish, and he wants to fight for Achish. And he said, Achish, give us a little bit of land so we're not under your nose all the time. But what David's been doing is he's going and raiding Israel's enemies, but he reports back to Achish that he's been raiding the enemies of the Philistines. Well, it's all worked out really well for about 16 months, but now things are about to come crashing down because Achish says, it's time to go to war. Look at this. Achish said to David, uh, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. Achish here saying, you've been faithful to me. I trust you. I want you to join me in battle. And oh, by the way, the battle's against your people, the Israelites. The tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. David's in a crisis. If I go fight, I'll be seen as a traitor. If I don't go, it'll be obvious that I was never really loyal to Achish. That's what we saw a few weeks ago. Now we're going to see in just a few minutes how God gets David out of this jam, but we need to see here that David's biggest enemy is not Philistia, it's not Saul. It's David. Rather than trust God to protect him, David again and again has been conniving. He's been using his own skills to try to deal with his arch enemy, to try to protect himself. And so what we see over the last couple of chapters is having foolishly sought rescue through a friendship with the Philistines, now he needs rescue from this friendship with the Philistines. Isn't that how life often is for us? You know, so many of the difficulties and stresses we face come not at the hands of our enemies, but from our own hearts. We worry. We can be so anxious about our situations, thinking we have to take matters into our own hands rather than simply trusting God. You know, trusting God doesn't mean we don't act, but it means that our actions follow faith. Just as the Israelites followed the fire and the cloud in the wilderness, or at least they were supposed to. Um, I borrow this from Alistair Begg, but I can certainly say it for myself. Begg was asked, in your years here at this church, and he had been there almost 40 years at the time, in your years here at the church, who has caused you the most trouble? It's a fun question, isn't it? And he said, without a doubt, Me. And he said, it's not false modesty. You can go ask my wife. Uh, same here. We can all say that. We can all echo the words of Romans 7.15. For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And so even the most sanctified among us, or maybe especially the most sanctified among us, we can understand what Luther meant when he said, we are simul justus et peccator. We are at the same time 
sinner and saint. We know that. But doesn't our sin sometimes catch us off guard? Doesn't our sin, we sometimes put our guard down. And that's when sin attacks. Yeah, that's when we're so vulnerable. Uh, I really hate snakes. And having kids, sometimes you go to a zoo or you go to one of those places where they have a snake and they're like, here, pet the snake. And my kids will say, Daddy, let's go pet the snake. And It's safe, Dad. And I just think that's what they want you to think. Haven't you read Genesis 3? Those things are never safe. But you know, what your flesh wants you to do is, is let your guard down so that sin becomes a normal part of your life. That's what's happened with David. You know, for the last 16 months, lying has been David's normal practice. Worldliness has been David's normal practice. This idea that David has deserted God's kingdom of Israel and gone to the enemy, gone to Philistia, is a picture of what worldliness is. And so often, Satan's ploy is to get a foot of worldliness into the door of our hearts through the guise of necessity. David thought, the only way that I can survive is to go this route. And it was through going that route that one sin led to another, to another, to another. And David found himself in a terrible predicament. And that's where David was. He had God's promises. God has promised that he would be king. David, is, is, he's immortal until God's will happens. He has the promise. And yet, he was afraid of Saul. And he was afraid of the Philistines. And he resorted to his own cunning. And he forsook the kingdom of God, in a sense, for the kingdom of this world. Why would he do that? For the same reasons you and I do it. How often do you and I have the promises of eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, but we look to this world for temporal salvations, temporal rescues, temporal joys, and we end up focusing so much of our heart and so much of our attention on those earthly things rather than the indestructible eternal kingdom that deserves our attention. And so uh, we profess to love God. But oftentimes we can find ourselves looking at the stock market far with far greater devotion than we do the scriptures. We want to be useful to the church, but we also love our leisure. Or we want to climb the corporate ladder. Or we're so desirous of pleasure and satisfaction that we drink from the trough of worldly entertainment. So much so that we have no appetite for the things of God. That's what we talked about this morning. That's the same kind of worldliness David is looking at here. He thinks, if I can just escape, if I can take matters into my own hands, if I can just be my own savior, then all will be well. He's following Saul's route. You remember that, right? Israel wanted a king like the nations, and so they picked Saul. He was tall and handsome. He was clever and strong. They could put their trust in that king, and David is doing the exact same thing with himself. The David of chapters 27 and 29 is almost unrecognizable from the David that we saw earlier in life, and it started with a wavering faith that David didn't think God would keep his promises. 
that God would be able to protect him. We've seen the enemy, and he is us. Now, we saw last time, Saul's unbelief was about to lead to his downfall. Now we see David's unbelief potentially about to lead to his downfall. And we've seen this. This has been hanging over our heads now for a whole chapter as the camera had panned away. And then in 29, it pans back. And we see how God sends help. This is our second point, the unexpected help. David's best efforts at self-rescue, at self-salvation, culminate in this. If he's going to be loyal to Achish, he's got to turn his back on Israel. Well, let's look at what unfolds here. The Philistines, the Philistine nation, it was divided into uh, five capital cities, each of which had a lord. Achish was the lord of Gath, and there were four other lords that ruled, and As these lords gather to muster the troops, they see Hebrews, these Hebrew men. What are these Hebrews doing here? What are these 600 men doing? And is is that David? And and they've heard on the radio that famous song that keeps coming back to haunt David. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And so the lords gather with Achish, and they say, what in the world are you thinking? And it's fascinating Half the ink in this chapter is devoted to just Achish defending David. Now, David's been deceiving Achish the whole time. Not one word that Achish says is accurate, even though he believes it. And the lords gather, they say, no way. This is a ploy. What he's going to do is while you're not looking, he's going to attack. How else could he reconcile himself to his Lord? And that's talking about Saul there. How in the world could he ever be made right with Saul other than to have our heads? Uh, As Achish is overruled, David is saved from the Philistines by the Philistines. It's an unexpected help that God causes David's sworn enemies to become his unexpected helpers, saving him from disaster. You know, isn't it often that way? That God works through unexpected means. Just think of Naaman. Uh, Suffering leprosy. A general in the Syrian army. Go wash seven times in the Jordan. I'm I'm an important man. I need something far better than that. I need a better treatment. I need some kind of medical, medical cure. I need some kind of spell. I don't know what I need, but it's not to wash seven times in a dirty river. And isn't that the story of the Lord Jesus? Many expected the Lord Jesus to come wearing the crown, but he first bore the cross. We should never discount God's ability to save, and he often does it through the most unexpected of instruments. Now look with me at verse 6. Achish comes to David and says, As the Lord lives, you've been honest And to me, it seems right that you should march out with me, in and out with me in this campaign, for I found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Right? And if you're David, think, wow, God has worked a miracle here. Don't you see, David once again does the unexpected. Verse 8, David said to Achish, but what have I done? 
What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? You know, every time I had read that before this time, I thought David was just keeping the ploy going. I thought David just wanted this appearance of loyalty. You know, the more I've studied it, I think it's very possible that David had actually schemed again. He had come up with his own plan. Okay, good, I'll go to battle. But when you're not looking, I'll, I'll, I'll have your head. I think it's a, a decent chance that David had made up his mind that he could once again rescue himself. The text gives us a very subtle but silent indictment of David. Look back at it. How many times is the Lord mentioned? Now, you've got Lord in regular font. That's talking about the Philistine lords, but we're talking about Yahweh, those small caps, the name of the covenant name of God. How many times is he mentioned? Just once in that text. Just once in those 11 verses, and what's amazing is David didn't speak it. It was Achish who spoke it. David's own scheming continues, even as it carries him further and further into danger, and he's still convinced he can fix this problem. He's still, as far as we can tell, he's still not crying out to the Lord. You know, there's no telling what ways David may have done greater harm if he had been able to go into battle and if he had killed the Philistines that were around him. You know, would his people ever trust him when he's back in Israel? Would foreign kings ever trust him if they've seen that kind of deception out of him? And more importantly, Was the Lord pleased that David seems to have been far more interested in plotting than praying? He was far more interested in scheming than trusting God's sovereign work. The fact that he takes divine veto power indicates that God wasn't pleased at all as he brings David's plans to naught. Now, you're students of Scripture enough to know that when God's name is not mentioned or barely mentioned in a passage, that is oftentimes when he is doing his most mighty works. And so the third thing I want you to see is the unseen God. David should have been dead by now. David should have been dead many times over. Goliath should have gotten him. In fact, before that, when he was a shepherd boy, the the bears and the lions should have gotten him. Saul should have gotten him. The Philistines should have gotten him. How do we explain the fact that David's still alive? God's sovereign intervening grace. His passage reminds us God is never an inactive bystander when it comes to his children. He is always at work behind the scenes. In chapter 29, God uses the Philistines to remove David from danger. In chapter 31, God uses the Philistines to remove Saul from the throne so that David can now ascend to the throne. God is at work behind the scenes in a most glorious way. Beloved, a big part, a great part of Christian maturity is being able to trust God even when we can't see him. That's the struggle David had, trusting the God he couldn't see. And how often is that our struggle as well? And it's not just the temporal battles that we have to trust God with, but it's the condition of our souls. 
In chapter 27, David's fear drives him into the land of the Philistines. In chapter 28, Saul's fear drives him into the house of a medium, a witch. Both were guilty of the same sin. It was unbelief. But consider what Yahweh does. The same tool, war, God used to save David and to execute Saul. Saul dies, in the context of what we saw this morning, Saul dies as an apostate. He he never physically deserted Israel, but he didn't trust God. He didn't believe God's promises. But David's destiny, even though their decisions were were very similar, in fact, we're going to see that through the life of David, David is at times more questionable in his character than Saul. So what was the difference? What we see here is God disciplined David so that he wouldn't follow the route of Saul, trusting in his own wisdom, and would allow instead his kingship to rest upon the foundation of of God's wisdom and power. These two men who had failed in so many ways would experience such different destinies that David would reign and Saul would rot. David would be lovingly brought to repentance while Saul was condemned to hell. What's the difference? Simply put, it is the sovereign grace of God. The only difference between David and Saul and the difference between Christians and the worldlings is not that we're righteous. It's not that we've merited any sort of favor from God, but that he, this unseen God, has sovereignly drawn us to himself to put faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The only difference between Saul and David, it was not a matter of David being of better character than Saul. It was the intervening, interfering, undeserved grace of God. It's incredible comfort in this passage because though David's faith failed, God's grace did not. God preserved him because David belonged to him. And that's what grace does. Like David, you and I are very apt to make utter messes of our lives. We often endanger ourselves when we're left to our own devices, but we have a heavenly father who doesn't let go of his children such that we don't finally fall away from him. Our sins, they are many, but David reminds us his mercy is more. David David needed to be saved from himself, and so do we, and only Jesus is able to do that. You know, you and I can go through life at war with everyone else. We can go through life as culture warriors. We can always be taking on the enemy, but we have to start with the enemy within, and we can't conquer him. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus could save David from himself. Only Jesus can save us from our enemies. How do we apply this text? Just two things. First, we need to resist every temptation towards worldliness. You know, sometimes, like David, Christians think that we can win our battles or we can make our lives easier or we can avoid persecution or perhaps we think we can win the world to Christ by being like the world. It doesn't work. 
It doesn't work because no matter how cool or no matter how magnanimous or no matter how tolerant or how humanitarian we try to make Christianity look, there's an undeniable fact. The world will always be at enmity with God's people. We cannot woo the world to Christ by acting like the world. David tried to act the part for Achish. Achish fell for it, but the other Philistine lords saw right through it. They saw this David, he's, he's a phony, and that's exactly what he was. Beloved, if you think that we can win the world to Christ or that we can avoid persecution by acting like the world, instead what the world's going to do is look at us and think we're just a bunch of phonies and turn their nose up even more. One commentator said, the world respects an out-and-out Christian, but neither God nor the world respect an inconsistent one. You know, the saddest part of David's foray into worldliness is that he wasn't able to help his people in battle. He loved Israel, but he wasn't able to be of any help to him. And in trying to save his own hide, he completely abdicated his own duties. We need to realize that is always the result of worldliness. When we act like the world, when we look like the world, we are of no use to the world. We are sidelined in the battle because we have nothing to offer. Worldliness so preoccupies us with things like wealth and reputation and status that we may indeed be believers, but utterly useless to God's people. We may be saved in the end, but when it comes to the battle for truth, for righteousness, for gospel proclamation to the ends of the earth, for discipleship, for prayer, we'll find that we've contributed virtually nothing. A worldly Christian cannot accomplish heavenly ends. Second application. Let's learn from David's life and from our own lives how gracious God is when he interferes with our plans. One of the things we see repeatedly in David's life is that God frustrates David's plans, ultimately causing David to see there is one Savior and it's not him. It can be difficult for us to relinquish our pride, thinking that we can always fix our own problems and be our own saviors. And so often the last thing we do in the midst of affliction is trust that God actually knows what he's doing. But let us live in this peace If any other circumstances had been better for you, the sovereign hand of God would have placed you there. Trust God, beloved. He knows what he's doing. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you for your word uh, that reminds us both in the indicatives and in the narratives of how you care for your people and how you often use unexpected means Uh, to work the mightiest of victories in the lives of your people. Father, help us, Lord, to turn away from self-trust and to trust you only. We pray this in Jesus' name.